Hello, welcome to the Asian Ed Education Podcast, uh, which is produced by the UNESCO Chair at Kyushu University in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. Uh, I'm Edward Vickers, and this time I'm talking to uh, Professor Zhang Wei of East China Normal University. Uh, Professor Zhang is Professor of Comparative Education and a uh, 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 very uh, renowned specialist on the topic of shadow education, uh, which is what we're going to be discussing today. She's recently published uh, a book with Routledge, uh, Taming the Wild Horse of Shadow Education, the Global Expansion of Private Tutoring and Regulatory Responses. Uh, and indeed, I should point out that that book is open access uh, on Routledge, exceptionally. Um, uh, I'm tempted to ask Professor Jiang, you know, how she managed to wangle open access for that book. Anyway, uh, the title of the book refers to the issue of regulating uh, shadow education, so um, uh, which is a, an aspect of the issue that we'll come to uh, later on. But I'd like to start by asking you, uh, Zhang Wei, what do we mean by the term shadow education? What is it? Well, uh, the sh shadow education is a metaphor for private supplementary tutoring, uh, which is defined by Mark Bray as uh, private news, meaning it is paid, Right. And also another dimension for it, it is academic tutoring in academic subjects, um, not tutoring like in arts or sports, that kind of training. And the third dimension for it is um, it is provided in parallel to the school system. It is uh, like, for example, if tutoring provided by teachers for free or within uh, schooling as part of the curriculum, it's not counted. This is the initial definition of private tutoring. And uh, the metaphor of the shadow uh, was used and popularized, of course, by Mark Bray because um, tutoring mostly mimic mainstream schooling. And mm -hmm. as the mainstream change, uh, the shadow also changes. But what I like is the, actually, if we think of the shadow of the sundial, it can tell us a lot about what is happening in schooling and the wider society. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned Mark Bray, who uh, spent most of his career as professor of comparative education at the University yeah. of Hong Kong. <laughs> Uh, and and I, I should say, I mean, Hong Kong is where I first encountered the Indeed. phenomenon of shadow education when I was a school teacher mm. there. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, I suppose what shadow education is most conventionally understood to mean is tutorial schooling, or what's often been referred to as cram schooling. At least that's a uh, one form of it uh, and a very yeah. prevalent form in societies like Hong Kong today in China and across East Asia. Um, so when I was a school teacher in Hong Kong, I, I, I remember being quite very struck, very shocked indeed to discover how much time many, actually most of my students in the mid 1990s were spending in the evenings and at weekends going to tutorial schools to, as I saw it, basically do all over again what they should have been doing or were doing in their regular school. Yeah, uh, and if, if we look at countries like Cambodia hmm. and Myanmar, where, uh, like in Cambodia, we, went, we, we conducted some field work. There was kind of um, double ship schooling. So after, like, the students finish the first half day of schooling and in the same classrooms with the same teacher and students, they conduct, they had tutoring in the afternoon. I would say in these systems, uh, a lot of tutoring happens in the, on the school venue to substitute 
the insufficient schooling provided by teachers. Uh, it's different from the dominant forms in East Asia. I would say in East Asia, the dominant forms are institutionalized well, they are now. as what you called well, they homeschooling. Yeah. They look like schools. Yeah. But that's, they're institutionally separate from the regular schools. Yes. And the teachers teaching, it, typically the teachers teaching in cram schools or tutorial <laughs> schools in, in East Asia or Northeast Asia are different people from the teachers in the regular schools. I mean, in the yeah. example you just cited of Cambodia, where, you know, how did you put it? The, double they, shift they have schools. Sort of double shift schools. Is it the same teachers often teaching in both yeah. shifts? So yes. they'll... They'll teach, they'll teach a sort of slimmed-down version of the curriculum in the regular shift, and, oh. then, and then they'll, mm. offer, they'll offer supplementary uh, teaching in the second shift for a fee. Is that basically Yeah, uh, I would say uh, the situation is more complicated because the curriculum is, in a way, overloaded, which really cannot be uh, finished within the you know, half-day school hours. Oh, oh and the, also, the, the hours that are scheduled yeah, for regular school. So actually, sometimes when we talk about teachers providing tutoring, we would initially just have this kind of impression. It's like teachers deliberately, right, check in the official classes, the squeeze for some kind of uh, demand to be met after school. But in, in Cambodia, what we found is uh, mostly teachers themselves didn't have the capacity to finish the overloaded curriculum. In well, you say, that, you say the curriculum is overloaded in that instance. I mean, mm. there may be a lot of material to cover in the curriculum. Uh, there may be a lot of, I mean, especially if there's a lot of rote learning involved, there may be a lot, of, a lot of material that students are simply expected to memorize or be able to reproduce in an right. exam uh, and it's the exam that is crucial isn't it i mean if, if the exam is testing everything that is in this overcrowded curriculum as you describe it then the teachers and the students will feel pressure to cover everything uh, however yeah, long if, it takes <laughs> wow well, that's, that's a good way to put it because what we discover is um it's already difficult to cover all the knowledge points in the official classes and then exercise is a very important part in the whole kind of learning process at school. When you so, say exercise, you don't mean physical exercise, exercise playing basketball no, no, in the no, playground. Exercise like homework, like okay. if you, you have to practice, right? After you learn some knowledge points, you have to practice with, uh, in, when you solve real like questions. So a lot of practicing, exercising uh, took place in the tutoring classes. Uh, yeah, and also, of course, we found some problematic dimension, which was related to favorism and uh, tutoring uh, what would be tested uh, here in Cambodia and also in Egypt. Uh, the schools, um, in a way, is supplemented by tutoring in terms of curriculum and financing. So teacher salary is low, and then te uh, teacher try to generate income from the tutoring market. It's in a way um, covertly, at least uh, even if it's not encouraged, but also, but 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 at least it was accepted by the school leaders and even some government officials. Yeah. While in East Asia. Um, it's different because I would say in East Asian societies, the schools is more, how to say, relatively um, more developed uh, in terms of financing, in terms of teacher education, teacher qualifications and funding, and also in including school uh, facilities, right? Right. Um, so, the, I mean, in, lot, in, in, mm. in Northeast Asia, at least, the schooling system is perhaps better equipped, better regulated, better staffed. And funding was more 
more assured. In the initial stages of development, we in, in all the societies in East Asia, I, I have conducted a study jointly with Yoko um, Yamato uh, on the five societies in East Asia, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China, uh, Japan, and Korea, South Korea. Um, we found that um, in when the tutoring first started, you know, to grow, a lot of mainstream teachers provided tutoring, and then uh, in Japan and Taiwan, uh, even Hong Kong, the government, the uh, there was criticism against such phenomenon, and the government also took action. Especially in Japan, it banned tutoring by teachers. So when teachers wanted to become tutors, they left school. So gradually, uh, teachers were uh, teachers. Most teachers stopped providing tutoring, and uh, tutoring enterprises they started to have their own professional tutors. They became less dependent on school teachers. So now what we can see in most of the societies and in urban China, uh, the dominant providers are tutoring institutions, while in rural areas where tutoring institutions are rare, mm -hmm. uh, school teachers still play a role. So Yeah, because in rural areas, mm -hmm. there isn't really the market to support. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you uh, note in your book um, where you emphasize that shadow education isn't or, or isn't any longer primarily or exclusively an Asian phenomenon, but it does seem to have become especially entrenched and widespread across East Asia. Um, and to the extent that that has been the case, I mean, why is that the case? Uh, in the case of Cambodia, which is, of course, Southeast Asia, uh, we've already discussed the pressure of high-stakes examinations. Um, but what is it that makes examinations, public examinations in East Asia, particularly high-stakes, it seems? Yeah, I would say in Cambodia, it's more than that. It's also about the insufficient schooling that tutoring, uh, a lot of tutoring is more than just test prep, but a lot of tutoring is about remedial and substituting or supplementing mm. school so gaps in schooling, right? Mm. But in East Asia, also as in Greece, mm. <laughs> where also there is high stakes examinations, tutoring, a lot of tutoring is, as you said, um, about um, exam preparation. Uh, of course, a lot of research has already talked about, even you, Edward, you, you talk about meritocracy, right? I would say uh, East Asia has a tradition of valuing education as important means for social mobility. Mm. or personal and family achievement. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always slightly awkward. I, I, it makes me feel slightly awkward to hear the, the, the phrase that, you know, East Asian cultures value education. I, um, I, it it depends gonna... what you mean by education. I mean, is it education that's I, being valued or is it credentials? I think credentials is a modern... Creation. I would say the value of education has been there all the time. Mm. And this kind of value of education with this advent of modern schooling has been really, really turned into the value of all the competition for credentials. And more than that, we, I think another cultural element is elitism. Mm. Why I bring out this? Because especially when I have compared China with Denmark. Denmark is a society that values egalitarian, 
right, valid, right kind of principles. While in China and Japan, elitism is not something to be shamed about.、Mm. Right, it's something to be. Well, yes, although China and Japan are sort of distinct in <laughs> in, in many ways.、Uh, yeah. Yes, but but you're. I think you're right in in pointing out that. The the sort of elite status that education can confer in Japan, for example, is really the only、yeah. sort of elite status that、yeah. is legitimate or that's seen as legitimate. Indeed,、uh, elite status as the modern schooling developed rapidly in this rapidly in these societies、um, is very much、um, guaranteed first by a degree from elite universities. Also, I would say it's also about if we think of the population of middle class, Japan in for a long time in historic in its history was called by some Japanese scholars as a middle class society, and now it has to of course tackle with all sorts of disparities,、uh, right, and even poverty in the urban area, and China with its accelerating development. Uh, we see a huge, a growing proportion of middle class. They feel insecure, and they need to、uh, use education as a way or credential, <laughs> or、uh, to try to make sure their children can get into elite,、mm. uh, right, education institutions. Yeah. So I, th-、mm. I think insecurity. Is, yeah, is is perhaps the key word here, and I、yeah. mean you mentioned you mentioned Denmark,、mm. in a way as a sort of contrasting case. Although I mean you've noted that there are forms of private tutoring that have been、yes. growing in Denmark in recent years,、mm-hmm. but but I mean isn't one of the things that distinguishes a society like Denmark from a society like well to some extent from Japan, but certainly from China? China is,、right. is that is that. In Denmark, at a very basic level, people don't experience the kind of insecurity or, or、no. that the,、uh, the, the they the, do in in Shanghai, for example. Right, exactly. I mean, it's a welfare society, right?、Mm. Um, and, and, and what I found interesting is、um, in China. I mean, in this elitist culture, what we focus on is achievement. Achievement is something.、Uh, if you, as a person, achieve, it's something you are proud of. It's something others would celebrate for you,、mm-hmm. right? But achievement basically means difference.、Mm-hmm. You have to be different from others to achieve, to be successful. While in Denmark, the culture is about sameness. Sameness.、Mm-hmm. So if you are different from others, you would feel uncomfortable. And you would feel kind of social pressure to be too different. So、mm. we found a lot of tutoring is not about being distinct from others. At least not to be like that when they are telling you, when the parents are telling you why they arrange tutoring.、Mm. But of course, there is a hidden. There's a certain amount of hypocrisy、that. going on. Yes,、yeah. uh, but a lot.、Uh, the largest tutoring company in Denmark. The students they serve,、um, half the student、well, they serve is、um, uh, students who needs to need remedial tutoring、mm. in order to catch up with others. If you interpret、yeah. it further, it's sameness. They、yeah. want to be the same as others, <laughs>、mm. but of course they also ser- serve another ta-、uh, proportion of students who try to strive higher,、mm. which is、um, part of the human nature, I would say. So that largely shaped, even including how tutoring companies advertise themselves.、Mm. Mm. Tutoring companies, yeah, in Denmark, they would never use VIP in the name of the company. But in China, you see VIP kids, VIP ABC, whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, to to some extent, I think Japan maybe stands between the extremes <laughs>、yeah. of Denmark and 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 China or Shanghai in that respect. In that, you know, Japan is also a a culture that values uniformity.、Um, Indeed, 
but yeah, but, but at the same time, you know, there is that intensity of meritocratic competition, and which is you know far more out in the open, I think, than than it is in a society like Denmark. Um, and yeah. as we discussed before, you know, the the, the sort the, of the status that meritocracy confers is is seen as something that you can legitimately sort of display in Japan. Um, whereas otherwise, it, it, this is a society where there's an intense pressure to conform. Yeah, I was actually just moving to that point. Um, also, if we look at Japan, and even now in China, the public sector, it really is trying to equalize, equalize everything. So Japan has a rotation, a system to rotate teachers around in school. the public around schools and and shanghai china is is also trying to implement such such kind of mechanism in for equalization of schooling uh uniform of course uh, i would say japan is something in between mm. also i would say if you look at the 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 advertisement of children companies in japan you could kojuku Juku are more, how do you say, mm, they don't go into the extremes. Yeah. Yeah. They are more disciplined, constrained. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you're not getting Juku in Japan, as far as I'm aware, doing, mm. putting out the sort of messages that you may f have found in China and perhaps still do right. in South Korea, you know, telling students <laughs> that they're being lazy if they're not studying until 2 a.m. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and say you are a re irresponsible parent if you are not arranging children for a child. you're not sending your kids to Juku, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, that's not really something that we're finding here in Japan today. That's, although... Yeah, that's why, I mean, if um, in my book I talked about how social norms play an important role in in regulation. This is not kind of formal regulation, mm. but kind of social regulation of tutoring providers' yeah. behaviors. But I, mm. I wonder whether a cultural explanation is enough. I mean, culture, no, I maybe, so. culture is part of it, whether we're talking mm. about Denmark or Japan or Shanghai. Yes, there are sets of attitudes and expectations. And as we were discussing, um different values placed on um conformity or vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis competition but underneath that and perhaps i'm implying a sort of marxist view of society by saying underneath uh, but underneath there is structure that there well there is there are socioeconomic realities yeah that that's yeah that inform people's sense of security or insecurity. And Indeed. even if we're comparing Japan with Denmark, this is a much more insecure society. You know, uh, the, you know, if you don't get a good result in your high school entrance exams at the age of 15, you will not get into a good high school. You will never go to a good university. You will never get that prestigious, secure uh, career. You will get a job because this is Japan in the 2020s with, um, uh, you know, uh, a squeezed labor market and uh, full employment. But there's, an, there's a very steep hierarchy within the labor market here. And there's, yes. only, one, there's only one chance. Basically. Yeah. To get, in Japan, it's very to get the very limited number of um, secure, uh, what you call in China, iron rice bowl type <laughs> uh, jobs that are on offer now, um, and in China, the extent of insecurity, of course, is even deeper. Isn't it? And, yeah, we. And, far deeper mm. and uh, far more extreme. And that's really fundamentally what's driving this intense competitiveness, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, we, we talked about this a lot in our research, in our papers, publications. Uh, probably it's worthwhile to repeat here. I mean, the competition is so fierce in these societies. 
because of the hierarchy of mm. the job market. Mm. So um, uh, in Denmark, uh, a professor may earn less than a truck driver, and the truck driver is equally respected by the society, right? While in China, it's not the case. I mean, each day I see a lot of delivery men in Shanghai driving crazy just in order to meet the you know, limited time given to them. And they sacrifice, sacrifice their life mm. for income. Uh, mm. Parents wouldn't want their children to become a delivery man. No. No. Uh, so that's why they are so anxious not for their children to end up in a vocational track. I, I, when I mean parents, these are parents who are mostly middle class parents because they have wh- white collar jobs. Yeah. Middle class parents. The toughness of, yeah. Middle class parents in China's cities, which is where city areas. This competition is at its most intense. Indeed, I mean, uh, really, uh, this kind of harsh reality. What kind of job you can get with what kind of diploma? Mm. Yeah, because uh, Chinese parents. Let's face it. I mean, Chinese parents. In a, in a society that is as unequal as China is, they can see the abyss opening Indeed. up between their, beneath their feet. Uh, they, yeah. can, they, they can see, you know, how far their children may fall if they don't succeed in these key examinations. And also very important is uh, if we think of how these parents uh, made their way to this status, social status, mostly through education. And then they believe the power of credentials, you know. Well, the yeah. current parents will because they have experienced, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the greatest sort of period, the most rapid period of economic growth mm. that China and possibly any society has ever experienced. And with it, it often uh, very considerable social mobility. So their own experience will validate the power. Also, Another thing which is ironically contesting is the social stratification now is a bit kind of stuck, you know. And uh, if we think of 80s, a lot of people without a degree can find their way, can um, make their way through mm. startup companies, you know. Mm. And, and because the economy was booming, there are a lot of opportunities. Even if you don't have a degree, you can become well, rich. Y- yes, fast. but in the 1980s <laughs> in China, there wasn't a big tutorial schooling industry. No, there uh, wasn't. I mean, there in was. the 1980s <laughs> in China was, I mean, some economists, e- economic historians have, have, have mm. um, noted was a period of, in a way, more sort of balanced uh, growth between rural and urban areas in China. And, um, uh, you know, there were complaints amongst many educated urban Chinese that, uh, you know, farmers coming in from the countryside and selling their melons by the roadside were earning mm. more than university professors. So you just, <laughs> you know, it's a bit like Denmark, yeah. maybe. Yeah. But, yeah, um, I mean, well, yeah, we, it's, uh, if we become too, yeah, I would say at that time, education wasn't the only channel the only means for social mobility. There were well, so many and, other and the options. labor market worked very differently in 19 yes, China. Exactly. So most people coming out of universities, uh, well, almost everyone coming out of universities and uh, even high schools was being allocated to particular jobs by the government, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and salaries are regulated and generally regulated at levels that by the late 1980s weren't keeping up with inflation. Uh, private enterprise was taking off much more rapidly in the countryside than in the cities, which, you know, uh, yeah. in a way quite nice for the farmers, but was creating resentments among urban Chinese by the late 1980s, which was part of the reason why there was unrest in many of China's cities then. Yeah. So what we see in the 1990s is a shift by the government, well, basically an acceleration of marketization and an extension, yeah, indeed. an extension of marketization to China's cities, which then allows urban residents to cash in the value of their mm-hmm. educational credentials, which yes. has been sort of suppressed exactly. by the socialistic system <laughs> up until then. Exactly. And as soon as that happens, and then by the late 1980s, once 
the higher education system is opened up to a sort of a form of marketing of massification mm. then you you really this this educational competition really becomes turbocharged and that's yeah. why in the 1990s you see this very rapid growth of tutorial schooling in china cities isn't it yeah i addressed uh, in i i actually co-authored the paper with mark on the whole historical development of tutoring industry in china in the 1980s uh the market was just warming up so uh, people still were not so used to the idea of education can be sold as a service. At that time, also a lot of teachers were providing tutoring for free, schools too. School also organized tutoring for the talented students, which were then uh, in a way uh, regulated by the government because it increased uh, the burden on the students, you know. And then, as you said, in the 90s, when the, uh, at the turn of the century, when higher education was expanded, of course, uh, the competition for university degree increased. It also, you know, created a lot of providers for tutoring that were college students. If you think of the, uh, <laughs> uh, the big boss of the largest tutoring companies in China. Mm. They start up. The well, companies like company, Supernova or um... uh, graduate after graduation from Beta, because right. they were already providing tutoring mm. as a student, and a lot of students who provided tutoring later became the you know manpower to support the whole expansion of the industry. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, all all of this, well, and and the changes that that uh, we were mentioning just now to the Chinese economy in the nineteen nineties, goes some way towards explaining the rapid growth in demand for tutoring, but also supply. <laughs> uh, well, and and supply with yeah. it, um, <laughs> which which brings us to the attempts to regulate the this private tutoring industry. Um, I mean, we've recently seen quite a draconian attempt in China to regulate right. uh, the private tutoring industry there with the, the so-called double reductions policy oh, mm -hmm. uh, introduced in 2021. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, and the approach that that policy took was to basically clamp down on supply. Um, exactly. That's what we also talk a lot, uh, talk a lot about here. We, we often say, yes, you've done a lot on supply side. What about demand side? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. uh, I mean, let, let, let's just explain what the double reduction policy <laughs> means. Uh, so what mm -hmm. are the double reductions? So what's the double, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reducing okay, let me... what? Yeah, let me go back a bit in the history. For a long time, uh, the focus of regulation was on teachers and schools providing tutoring because it was considered as something, you know, gray area, easily leading to corruption and, uh, you know, malpractice. Mm -hmm. uh, while some local governments already started uh, devising regulations of tutoring companies, but mostly commercial regulations. Uh, Shanghai was the first, I would say, um, to regulate tutoring in both educational and commercial dimensions. Uh, started in 2016, and then the official regulations were released in 2017. And Shanghai was, in a way, become a kind of pilot spot for the national government finally to issue the first national uh, policy to regulate the tutoring industry mm. in 2018. That, yeah. if we if we compare that document with the regulations on tutoring and double reduction policy, we can see a lot of similarities. So the story is. But but we also we can also find that double reduction policy is uh, is more fierce. Why so? Well, yeah, I mean, so, mm. so so on the one hand, you're implying that there's a sort of 
you know, gradual ratcheting up of regulation in the 2010s. <laughs> but anything, mm. I don't, I, I think hardly anyone was expecting this. Yeah. I was. Sudden <laughs> clampdown. Okay, you were. Yes. Why, why were I, you expecting it then? I was part of the flow and I was already alerted and worried uh, during the COVID, you know, pandemic uh, lockdown. Well, that's the context uh, for the, the introduction of this yeah. policy. In the 2018, the national government issued a policy to regulate the market, especially, you know, on advertisement on those uh, uh, promotion that is deliberately designed to, you know, um, create anxiety and to, you know, so that... So they're, sort of, they're sort of blaming to... the tutorial companies for promoting feelings of insecurity amongst parents and students, basically. And also per, uh, creating a kind of illusion that everyone is using tutoring. If you don't use it, your children would lag behind. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, I can tell you how extreme the advertisement was. Almost each day, I got a phone call from a tutoring company trying to sell me classes. Wherever I go, when I enter residential, uh, you know, compound. In the, on the lift <laughs> and on, even on those stoppers for a parking slot, I see all sorts of tutorial advertisement. And on CCTV, on the official television, uh, one of the largest online tutoring company is advertising. Really? Buying advertising? Yes. I didn't realize you could buy yeah. advertising and slots advertisement on CCTV. Is so, uh, the, the advertisement itself is uh, trying to, to say, if you don't arrange such tutoring for your children, your children wouldn't achieve. And we are here to give you a whole chain of solution. Right. I found it really, really, <laughs> uh, I, I feel it's going in the wrong direction. So I tried my best to alert hmm. the, the, you know, the founders of such companies. Then because of this kind of very aggressive advertisement of one online tutoring company, mm. it uh, triggered a whole kind of advertisement wars because all the largest companies try to, you know, outbid uh, each other, compete, compete yeah. for the uh, second, uh, no, third and fourth tier cities and the rural areas because they are they, they already have the capacity to expand its online tutoring. And, and its was, this, was tutoring. this this was happening during COVID or even before already before? COVID, it, yeah. The war already started. So what, what but during did, COVID? But what what happened during COVID then? Because that's, that's COVID, what seems to have mm, sort of been the immediate background to this policy. Yes, during COVID, two very important things happened. One is the uh, even going more out of control. <laughs> advertisement wars because online tutoring you know companies they all wanted to grab the chance mm. you know to compete for the untaken land mm. territory mm. uh at the same time well i mean because we're, we're investors... seeing during covid aren't we a sort of spike in demand for tutoring and, demand... and particularly of the on of the online kind demand on the one side on the supply side it's the Investors, venture investors, and other kinds of investors, they smell that there is profit mm. in the online tutoring market. Mm. A lot of money rushing in. I can give you an example. A tutoring on Chinese uh, language learning and cultural related learning is Chinese subject tutoring company just grew. Uh, the, the kind of, um, it was established not long before COVID. And then all in a sudden, the founder got a lot of investment worse than 200 million. Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> just a start up, just a start up company. <laughs> so then uh, you can see how the, the, the whole online tutoring market is booming, is uh, running like a rocket. And the advertisement really become so Mm, you can you can just just uh, click WeChat or just open TV. A lot of places you see very uh, see uh, advertisement with twisted values. 
So imagine if I can see it, policymakers can also see it.、Mm. What would policymakers feel? The twenty eighteen in in China. I mean, the, the,、uh, what they're going to fear more than anything else is potential social unrest, right? No, what they feel is the twenty eighteen policy didn't work. It didn't get implemented first.、Right. Second, they feel that education is turned into a business, and we are a socialist country. They, they really believe that. Mm. <laughs> I'm not joking here because I I really worked hard with them. I I feel like someone swimming against the tide、mm. because before they regulated it, I said regulate, regulate, please regulate. And after they started regulating, I'm saying, look, we need some balance here. We cannot kill them all. There are、mm. still beneficial or desirable dimensions. So um, China was very strong on the public sector. You know, and on education,、uh, conveying the certain sort of values that.、Um, well, precisely. I、um, mean, the, the the government wants to ensure that the curriculum that's being provided in regular state schools is. You know, following the 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 national the, curriculum. Yeah, following yeah. the national curriculum, following the、mm. the framework that the、uh, that the party that the state has dictated, and it's uncomfortable. I think putting it mildly, isn't it, with the idea that more and more of educational provision, if we can call it that,、mm. was being provided by entities outside. The control of the、It's, state. Yeah, especially a lot of foreign、uh, money, foreign investment flashing. They felt like a bit、mm. threatened.、Uh, also, I I would say, the advertisement is really trying to convey the value that you should compete with others. And if you don't compete, if you fail, then parents, you are to be blamed.、Uh, there is an advertisement I often use for my class. It's advertised by a very famous company. I'm not going to name it. It's three students standing in the list of students admitted to the best universities, you know, Beida and Tsinghua. And two students were like, "Oh, I got admitted to Beida." The other said, "I got admitted to Tsinghua." And the girl was there. Oh, I didn't get anywhere、uh, in those schools. I only got admitted to this school, this university. Actually, it's not bad. And then she started crying. And then the mom appeared. What's wrong? How can you only go to that university? And the girl said, "It's your fault. You didn't arrange this tutoring for me." Right. Very crude messaging. Effective, perhaps. Effective. Very effective. I mean, even after the double reduction, I a lot of tutoring became. Uh, you know, underground, and they take different forms.、Mm. One form is those students,、uh, those tutors, broadcasting. Yeah. Using yeah. the. So let, let's rewind slightly.、Mm. So I mean, the double reduction policy was introduced in 2021, basically to clamp down on what the government was was seeing、uh, as a sort of wild west or wild, wild east ex- of, of wild expansion. I would、yeah. say, why do I say wild horse? It's a wrong a wild horse. horse. Yes, yes. the title、horse. of your book. Yeah, it used to be a wild horse,、mm. which hasn't been tamed by by a kind of you know a, a formal institution, and then it's a wrong way horse. It's going out of control. It, it, when it's expanding offline, still it's not at that speed.、Mm. When it's expanding online, it's really going out of control. It's threatening the mainstream system. Yeah, so you so you have a wild horse or a runaway horse as your metaphor for the tutoring industry. What's the government's response? Well, to kill the horse, basically, isn't it? Twenty twenty one. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, wait, now that double reduction kill tutoring, what are you up to now? What's your research about? Uh, yeah, uh, I would so- like to clarify. So it's not killing. Um. I would say there are several goals. One is decapitalize. Right. You know、we'll、what I mean. Decommercialize. And it decapitalize 
driving the capital out. No investment, no venture investors, no in venture investors, no other kind of capitals. Uh, it's very much Marxism. Anyway, in academic tutoring. So for companies like TIL and New Oriental, which are listed, they have to detach the sector on academic tutoring because companies providing academic tutoring is not allowed to be listed in the stock market. Right. That is what I mean, decapitalize. The second is to... <laughs> no, so, so okay, what, what are these double reductions? You know, what's being reduced? Reduction one, what's being reduced? China has a history of burden reduction policy. Since 1950s, China has been trying uh, yes. with rounds and rounds of reforms to reduce burden in the mainstream schooling. Now but they realize... Burden of what? The fact... The birth study burden. Oh, okay. Study load mm. on students. Mm -hmm. So that one dimension of the burden is burden from mainstream schooling on the students. Right. Like homework. A lot of okay. students, primary kids may have to do homework up to midnight. Things yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. And also another type of burden now they try to recognize is burden from shadow education. So, so hang on. One, so there's double reductions. One reduction is the reduction in the of in the school system, homework sort of burden, right, study right. load. Right. Okay. The second is the burden uh, caused by private tutoring. One is the study load on students. Mm -hmm. The second is financial burden on families. Right. The financial mm -hmm. burden that that arises through families basically paying more and more for private tutoring for their children. So reduction of curriculum load, basically, and reduction of financial drain on families from private mm. tutoring. But where does examinations come into this? <laughs> so if they're yeah, reducing I the curriculum, they're reducing, well, effectively, they're reducing the scope Indeed. for private tutoring companies to operate what's happening to the examinations? Because ultimately the kids in, are all still competing in these examinations. Indeed, as you mentioned, they also thought of it. That's why they were in parallel trying to reform the examinations. You know, now the new curriculum reform with a focus on core competences mm. are going in that direction, but mm. it's a long way to go, as we all know. Uh, right, so this is an ongoing mm. thing, the reform to mm. examinations. But meanwhile... Um, private tutoring companies have had the chop, <laughs> and um, um, uh, yeah, I, I would I, say yeah. But but also if if the curriculum uh, burden, so called, has been reduced, while the examinations have not yet been reformed, but private tutoring companies are being controlled. Exactly. What does that do to demand for private tutoring? Exactly. That's what we kept talking about here with policymakers and also among ourselves. Uh, the story is, uh, as you know, uh, the tutoring companies, the number of tutoring companies were largely redu reduced. And then part of the employees, the tutors, you know, fired by the companies or left the companies, mm. uh, started working underground right like uh, one man operations or one woman yeah, it's on the internet career yeah. uh i would say it's in a way turning the uh, before double reduction the industry has already already had already reached the stage of you know institutionalization mm. and digitalization and now it's bring it back to earlier stages of institutionalization because a lot of institutions were dissembled mm. and a lot of private, informal, self-employed tutors reappeared. And um, which, which makes it, of course, much more difficult, if not impossible, uh, to regulate. Yeah. yeah. So the first year for the department in charge of regulating the tutoring industry, their aim was to first reduce the numbers of 
uh, institutions who can, which cannot uh, comply or conform to the regulations, you know. So then that was successfully reduced. I would say, uh, think, uh, let's stop and think for a moment. Uh, giant tutoring institutions are more harmful if they do something bad than compared to informal, individual you know, self-employed yeah, tutors. Uh, that's the basic, I, I would call the basic um, theory underneath. Uh, so the first year, of course, the priority was to reduce the numbers of institutionalized tutoring enterprises, institutionalized forms of tutoring. And then the second year, of course, they noticed there's a lot of policy learning here. So they noticed uh, the side effects is expansion of invisible and, you know, uh, informal tutoring, then they try to regulate that. Mm. And also they try to, I mean, it's not that the, the, the double reduction also paid attention to demand. They did recognize working parents need uh, kind of supply for childcare. And also uh, there are students with learning difficulties that need support. That's why at the same time, they, uh, we launched the nationwide after-school programs mm. to you know, provide uh, support for children after school. But that uh, during implementation enactment uh, led to other issues like burden on teachers. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. on schools. So if you tell teachers, yeah. right, well, you can't go home and rest after you've taught your lessons. You're going to have yeah. to stay for another three hours and do <laughs> yes. um, effectively unpaid. But some local government did well, like in Chengdu, they pay the teachers well, and also teachers were not so stressed out. So teachers in Chengdu were more satisfied if compared to teachers in other places. And, and in Guangdong, Guangdong had long established a kind of partnership between uh, teachers in school and uh, providers from outside, um, from other education institutions. So mm. that kind of burden can be shared. Mm. Anyway, uh, yeah, you're right. The demand is still there. And uh, they recognize that kind of challenge. Uh, that's why they are still working out new ways to deal with that. Uh, but is there any mm. discussion then? Yes, if, always. If, I mean, if, mm. so the, the, the approach that was taken with the double reductions was to basically focus on supply and in particular focus on clamping down on these big, you know, highly capitalized... <laughs> Um, yes. Uh, mm. Private tutoring conglomerates, Kingdoms. basically, <laughs> to, to 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 sort of break that business model, um, right? For whatever reason, and I mean that was happening. It perhaps we should note at the same time as the 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 government in China was was clamping down on people like Jack Ma right. and Alibaba. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's there's also an element I think of discomfort with. You know these large operators in whatever field, whether it's education yeah, or it's any the other field, scale of it. yeah, who are who have the potential to sort of in a, in, a, in effect set policy policies or priorities which may differ from those of the government. Mm. Um, but I mean, with the double reductions policy, the the focus is on very much on supply. But as you were just suggesting, there's an increasing recognition that you know. They always recognize. They always um, recognize, and actually, the first, I think, uh, the first week after the double reduction policy had been released, we submitted a policy kind of consultation to show that the demand is there, and parents they are unlikely to give up tutoring despite the policy. They know, it's just they they set their own priorities. They 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 try to do things one step. And also, they try to adapt to the changing picture. Uh, like, uh, uh, it's not, uh, I can't disclose, but two years ago, I gave some advice mm. and they said it's still too early. But now they come back to me to say, yes, please, indeed, we need yeah. this. So, uh, I mean, yeah. but, but is, is there any, 
Is there any discussion of what yes. might be needed yes, to damp down demand? Um, I think uh, the discussion should be first to recognize demand and to analyze and to analyze demand. Uh, this year, uh, just uh, not long ago, we had a meeting with all the experts in Beijing with uh, policymakers from MOU. Actually, one of our priorities is to research different categories of demand mm. and then how that demand can is being met by different provisions, education provisions. And yeah, and how... But I mean, mm -hmm. to what extent can demand for shadow education or for private tutoring be controlled or moderated through changes to the education system? Because it, is it ultimately the education system that's driving that demand? Mm, I would say the or, society. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, don't we don't we ultimately come mm -hmm. back to the insecurity that we were discussing earlier? Yeah, the risk of economy, the hierarchical social structure, and uh, emphasize also on achievement. Um, if we mm. think of Japan, yeah. since when the kind of heated, heated demand for tutoring, you know, we cool down a bit. <laughs> mm. um, sadly to say, um, declining birth rate. Declining birth rate. <laughs> and then you have more places for, for you know, uh, in Japan, each baby boom is a trigger of uh, one boom for private tutoring. <laughs> well, I, I think there's something in that. Because, well, it's something. Uh, I mean, I, just, I mean, mm. it, there's something in that. Mm. So far as, well, I mean, the intensity of educational competition in Japan does seem to be less than it is in mm. In Korea and, and and China, urban China, and you know maybe that does have something to do with the the different it's the, the, really the older good. age profile of the population and the fact that you know kids you know you have small families mm -hmm. uh, with one child know, relatively well well off parents mm -hmm. uh, and kids can feel that well look if I don't get into Tokyo University. My my parents have a house. Um, <laughs> that'll come to me eventually. Uh, I'm not going to yeah. starve because this is Japan. Um, so, I mean, essentially what there is here is a certain, I mean, at least for many families, a certain <laughs> basic level of security. Yeah, it's related also to different stages of economic development. Mm. Japan is entering a kind of what you said, a certain extent of security and uh, people can ease up a bit. But of course, with the economic situation now, you cannot really completely relax. Mm. In China, we are still in this accelerating development in every domain. Mm. In except, our society, accelerating. Yeah, except except that except that it's not accelerating so much anymore. It is because everyone in the society can feel. You can mm. see the economy is not uh, the globe. The economic mm. growth is not accelerating, but the pace of life mm. is mm. accelerating still. Or, or, or the competitiveness. The co the pace of life is accelerating, which mm. then resulted in the competitiveness because mm. everyone has to uh, really achieve within a very limited time. If you yeah. fail, then you can't catch up. Well, so and, it's and, for uh, everyone. Mm. As I think I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, there's very high youth unemployment rates now in Chinese mm. cities, which must yeah. be further fueling this competitiveness yeah. and demand for right. and educational advantage. <laughs> look at how the graduate education expanded is, is kind of the admission to graduate education is also expanding. Mm. And then actually how many posts are there for academic, for scholarship, right? Uh, A declining like, number, yeah. Also, we talk about um, how diverse. We, 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 we always critique we don't have a diverse assessment evaluation system. 
and then you see a lot of people trying to compete on one track, you mm. know. So, mm. and and I think people, a lot of people, just get so carried away by competing for something that everyone else is competing for, they forgot to stop for a moment to think: Is that something first I want, or mm. is that something I need? Then mm. is it something I am good at? Mm. Actually, there are a lot of other options. But because of this kind of competition, they don't have time to stop and think. Mm. Well, apart、mm. from those, and、uh, perhaps it's incorrect to mention this because、mm. um, <laughs> I know it's disapproved <laughs> of by the government. Apart from、well. those young people who, who talk about lying flat, you know, tangping. Yeah, know, which, which which is an a, a, obviously a sort of act of rebellion、mm. against、yeah. extreme. Competition, or it's just kind of. I I just did a research with some student and I. We found it very interesting, and we we did a research, a small kind of study on it, including on Japan. Japan、mm. has this kind of、uh, yudori education, which was blamed for creating this relaxed generation, <laughs> but、mm. actually.、Uh, I mean, in China, then people wonder if China is also entering uh, a, a historical period where the young generation no longer want to,、um, you know, work hard and they just want to enjoy life.、Uh, but still, uh, uh, you see a lot of tangping、uh, statements in the internet and among them. It's kind of、uh, self. Uh, I would say they try to have that kind of therapy for themselves because the whole the the real world is so cruel. They have to compete, and at least they want to <laughs> have、mm. a space in the virtual world to talk about. Oh, I want to tamping,、um, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't see a trend for that yet. No. No. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting discussion. Thanks, Chang Wei.、Um, Thank you. I mean,、uh, you know,、uh, as I, I think, you know, our discussion has indicated, the outcome of this double reduction policy is still rather uncertain, and、um, yeah. Um, and also,、uh, I think the key concept that perhaps we should take away from this is the relationship between. Demand for shadow education and insecurity in society in general. Yeah,、um, uh, and, and the also, difficulty of, of 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 sort of addressing a, a, a what you have in China in recent years, which is this sort of craze for shadow education. The difficulty of addressing that through the craze for supply side reforms alone. Also, the supply side trying to create demand and、uh, to impose demand because they have. Control of the online、mm. space. I would say it's very complicated.、Uh, during COVID,、mm. I really try to alert them. I、mm. say this is not the way you do education. You should really stop and think. But they were so carried away by the money they make, you know,、mm. and they don't want to be lagged behind. They didn't have time to think. But interestingly, after double reduction, they took my advice. A lot of my advice. They listened to it and they think, yes, this is the way to go. And we try to do education that is really desirable. Let's let's try here and there, and they adjust.、Uh, I'm not saying all. I'm not talking about all the tutoring companies, but some tutoring companies who still try to do education, and they do try to reflect and try to say, let let me let let's、uh, reorient ourselves and try to do something good,、uh, still finding our niches. Yeah. Uh, I found it interesting because at that time no one listened to me. I, I tried so hard to warn them because I、mm. saw it coming in a way.、Uh, they didn't listen, and then、yeah. after that. <laughs> well, as you said in your、yeah. book, I mean, shadow education isn't going、stay. away. It's here to stay. <laughs> you know, however、Indeed. much various people, including perhaps some of China's leaders, might wish it would go away, it's not going to go away. Yeah. So、uh, it remains to be seen. You know how. Whether in China or or elsewhere, we're going to, Look, to、uh, cope with this and deal with it better. If you remember in the futures of education report, you talk about safeguarding schooling, but we have to 
think out of the box of schooling to admit to the fact that schooling is far from enough to educate our children for the future. Mm. Right? So look at other forms of education and see how they can work together. I mean, this whole thing about shadow education is already a very clear sign. Mm. You know, that schooling is, however, uh, we can have wishful thinking that school can fulfill all the education goals, but it's not realistic. Mm. Mm. Although, well, I mean, <laughs> we could go on with this debate for a long time. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I guess, you know, to see examination preparatory shadow education as a, a healthy extension of schooling is something that you know many would have problems with i guess i mean as opposed to music lessons or mm -hmm. extracurricular <laughs> sports or all the other things that kids might be doing with their time outside regular schooling um, yes spending more time cramming for exams is it's not the way to is a blight way out. on our children around the world today and particularly here in east asia yeah, but uh, another thing I noticed is like in Japan, then this fierce policy came, the shadow education sector diverse. You, you can see diverse curriculum, including those for whole person development, you know, mm. experiential learning, things mm. like that. That's a positive mm. change. Yeah. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's still well, be hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. I enjoy the chat. Okay.